0: Hello everyone, my name is Logan Woods, and thank you for joining today's edition of Weaver Beyond the Numbers. Today we're gonna to be discussing how to identify and mitigate bank fraud. Here with me is Victor Padilla. Victor is a managing director in Weaver's Forensic and Litigation Services Department. He has over 20 years of experience and is a certified fraud examiner. Also here with me is James Myhills. James is a partner in our risk advisory group, and he has 25 plus years of experience um, serving banking institutions. Today we'll be revisiting two bank fraud schemes and their red flags and things they could have done to mitigate those red flags and how to identify eventually those red flags. So just to jump right in here, um, just give us some background, our first scheme is gonna look at a company who defrauded one of the largest banks in the Caribbean. And they did this by, with the falsification of collateral for commercial loans. Um, and Victor, can you kind of set the scene for us here? What, what was going on in this, in this case? Absolutely,
1: Logan. Um, well, so in this case, this, uh, this is a pharmaceutical company uh, in the Caribbean. So basically, the CEO of the pharmaceutical company needed uh, funding. So he approached the bank and uh, offered uh, the receivables as collateral. So basically, the, uh, the bank thought that everything was fine, extended the loan, and then after some time, um, the, uh, the pharmaceutical company in the Caribbean defaulted on these loans or basically started uh, to miss some of the payments. Yeah. So as a result of, um, of this um, lack of payments, the, uh, the CEO of the pharmaceutical company offered additional collateral. Mm-hmm. The collateral um, was in the form of real estate assets. Many of these assets were outside the U.S. This included uh, mines, included land, included some other forms of real estate. Um, eventually, the, uh, the pharmaceutical company uh, the defaulted um, in, you know, completely. So this was one of the major factors in eventually causing the collapse of this, um, of this bank in the Caribbean. So pretty unfortunate situation.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a big deal. Mm-hmm. Can you shed some light on the, the fraudulent acts that were taking place and what they were doing to acquire these loans on, on false pretenses?
1: Absolutely. So in this case, the, um, basically the, uh, the, the normal business consisted in the, uh, the pharmaceutical company getting uh, a request mm-hmm. from a customer. So the customer approved a purchase order Once the purchase order was approved by by the customer, then the the pharmaceutical company continued the process and ultimately issued an invoice during the regular uh, course of business. So this uh, receivable of this invoice was basically the collateral for the bank. At some point, the CEO of the pharmaceutical company uh, instructed some of the employees to basically create uh, fake purchase orders and oh, wow. fake invoices. Some of these invoices, well actually, all of these falsified invoices were sent only to the bank and obviously not to the customer. So these um, uh, fraudulent uh, invoices and, and the receivables were provided to the bank as, as collateral. So, so that was at the core, um, the uh, kind of the main issue associated with this fraud scheme.
0: Yeah, and, and so what what could the bank have been looking out for or what could the red flags have been that the bank could have identified that could have helped mitigate um, this fraud scheme?
1: Yeah, great question. So um, a couple of things there. I think the first one is that just the fact that your customers are, meaning in this case, the, uh, the, the customer of the bank was laid behind and not making all of these uh, payments mm-hmm. that by itself should have been kind of a, a significant red flag and of course you know it's it happens right sometimes companies do well sometimes they do not but but that by itself I think should have um, resulted in the bank, conducting some due diligence around these invoices or these receivables. Uh, Of course, I mean, in practice, um, and again, by conducting some of these investigations, some of these invoices could be legitimate, but some others were not. Mm -hmm. But just the fact that you start with the premise that you will get payments and then suddenly you fall behind, that's a red flag. Uh, I think the bank should have uh, inquired, should have tested, should have potentially even called the end customers to uh, verify that some of these receivables were legitimate. The second red flag is when we got into the uh, the real estate assets. Um, just because this was a U.S. bank and uh, the bank did not have operations overseas, that again by itself, uh, it's something that is out of the norm uh, in the sense that they should have also verified the uh, the value of those assets yeah. that were offered as collateral. Mm-hmm. Instead of just taking these documents at face value, and then not only uh, for not forgiving, but increasing the loan because additional uh, money was provided to to this pharmaceutical company. So, to me, I think those are the two sort of critical points in in terms of red flags.
0: Yeah, those sound very critical. And and how did they end up uncovering this this fraud scheme? Like you said, the bank ended up you know going down. I think after this, so yeah. How did they end up?
1: That was not the only reason, but it was one of the significant drivers of the collapse. Mm. Um, but in terms of how the, uh, the behavior was identified, um, unfortunately, and I say unfortunately because again, uh, I know there's a lot of investment behind trying to identify some of these issues. In, in my experience, conducting uh, a number of investigations, uh, probably the most typical, um, I would say, method to identify some of these um, behavior is through uh, somebody basically either reporting issues through an mm-hmm. ethics hotline, sending letters to management, or sometimes in extreme cases to go straight to regulators. So to answer the question, in this case somebody from the bank, um, actually the VP of finance of, not of the bank, the, v, the VP of finance of the pharmaceutical company got extremely concerned about the discrepancies between the information reported to the bank and the actual value of the receivables. Mm. So he basically went to the bank and, and expressed the concerns. The bank started to do some additional review of the documents, got obviously extremely concerned at that point, yeah. and then the, the regulators and authorities were involved.
0: Wow, wow, sounds like a big deal. And, and James, I, w- I wanna bring you in here and get some of your expertise. What are some of the controls that the bank could have had in place to one, help them mitigate this fraudulent risk and then eventually identify ideally this fraud sooner. Yeah, and it's possible that this bank did have some form
2: of internal controls over these types of loans and Mm -hmm. and those controls for whatever reason just didn't operate uh, effectively. some general controls to have in mind for any, any loan that is collateralized by something like receivables, it's important that the bank be able to validate mm-hmm. those receivables from an ex- existence standpoint, from an evaluation standpoint. Uh, what a lot of banks will require is uh, the quarterly submission of a borrowing base certificate from the borrower in which they're reporting the value and makeup of those receivables that are collateralizing the loan. It's important that the bank gets supporting documentation for those receivables, Mm -hmm. you know, an AR aging, for instance. Uh, And they also need to be getting quarterly financial statements so that their credit department can analytically look at that data to determine whether or not the reported collateral makes sense. Uh, You know, for instance, just asking whether the level of accounts receivable corresponds to reported sales. Uh, Are there unhealthy trends regarding? Uh, accounts receivable aging, and that can be receivables aging too long or receivables paying off much quicker than expected. Uh, Looking at things like credit patterns. I mean, there's a number of ways to look at receivables Mm -hmm. that can indicate uh, a a, a questionable uh, balance. Uh, For other assets that are collateralizing loans, uh, Victor just mentioned real estate assets. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's important to get uh, independent valuations of those types of assets that should be done, not only at the origination of the loan, but also uh, during the life of the loan, just to make sure there's no degradation Mm -hmm. of uh, value. And of course it goes without saying, audits are important. So make sure that the the loan customer is getting independent audits, that whatever collateral is being uh, pledged for that loan, that that collateral is being looked at from an existence and evaluation perspective. Uh, A couple of other things that banks should keep in mind from the standpoint of loan portfolio monitoring, clearly it's important to monitor your past due loans. Mm -hmm. Uh, As as Victor just said, a past due loan in and of itself doesn't indicate uh, potential fraud, but it does indicate a potential problem. Uh, And so it's important that loan officers, as soon as that loan becomes one day overdue, they begin working that loan from a collectability standpoint, but banks can't just leave that to the loan officers. There needs to be independent formalized oversight of the loan officers, whether that's uh, the the, the chief credit officer or the credit function uh, or uh, an independent loan committee or some composition of management. But there needs to be uh, a formalized process whereby this, this group is overseeing the work of the officers to ensure that collection issues are being very promptly identified and addressed. And then the last thing I would mention is for any lines of credit that are collateralized Mm -hmm. by something like accounts receivable, whatever function within loan operations is responsible for funding those loans, it's important that they have a control whereby they are verifying that the borrowing base is current, that all of the verification has taken place, Mm -hmm. and the loan is current before any additional uh, funds are advanced on that loan.
0: Yeah, that's that's really insightful, and I think several of those things sound like they might have helped this bank. You know, like you said, they might have had some controls in place, but whether they were working or not, I think I think that's really insightful. Um, and, and Victor, along along those lines of having a third party, independent party, come in and help, what can you and your team do to help someone in this situation, whether it be reactionary or preventative services um, in this type of situation.
1: Yeah, so so that's um, I mean an interesting question from the standpoint that some of the uh, services were already described right a lot of mm-hmm. that we can do as a firm is you know internal controls assessing the state of the bank always I think it's important to have kind of a fresh perspective mm-hmm. somebody with uh, the expertise that we have collectively to basically take a fresh look sometimes banks and, and institutions get comfortable and, and they don't necessarily take action. Now specifically about fraud investigations or kind of the forensic accounting services that we provide, we can do proactive fraud risk assessments, um, which is basically early in the process. We can do in the case of um, some of these receivables and the end customers, we can also do third party due diligence. In mm-hmm. this case, I think um, that, that could have also helped address yeah. some of the, some of the issues. Um, We also do, of course, um, reactive investigations. Sometimes we are just called, once again, to take a fresh perspective. And, um, you know, basically we can do everywhere from uh, a proactive fraud risk assessment to just an independent review, all the way to a corrective or reactive investigation.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think this case is very interesting. And I think both of y'all have given us some really good insight. Um, and I think our next you know, fraud scheme is also um, really interesting to look at, and it involves a scheme with you know wire fraud, impersonation of vendors, and even money laundering. So, Victor, uh, what can what can you give us some background of, of this case here? Absolutely. So,
1: so yeah, I mean, as, as you mentioned, Logan, this uh, this case um, is interesting and. Unfortunately, it's a recurring theme that we are seeing mm-hmm. lately. Um, information is readily available, um, I- and in this particular case, the, uh, the scheme consisted in uh, an individual basically getting access to um, a vendor master list in addition to some of the balances. Mm-hmm. So this uh, fraudster was, uh, I would say, a little more sophisticated than what we see. Um, In most other cases, this individual, uh, in addition to basically impersonating vendors and reaching out to uh, several organizations requesting payments for uh, for these um, vendor balances, this uh, individual had sort of the the foresight to create um, bank accounts. These bank accounts were also created with uh, fake identities. So cre- this person created a network of bank accounts in which after some of the victim organizations made some of these payments, then these funds were moved throughout different accounts. So this was kind of another, um, you know, I would say, twist yeah. into this type of uh, scheme.
0: So how were they able to, I guess, pull off this scheme? It sounds like they had some access to information, maybe that they shouldn't have.
1: Yeah, well, it's it's unclear sometimes mm-hmm. to uh, to determine exactly how the information was obtained. I can tell you that uh, by conducting several fraud investigations with this pattern, uh, I remember one in which the uh, the, the fraudster uh, basically obtained access to some of the. Um, uh, Victims' bank accounts by um, getting access through uh, to the passwords through the dark web. Mm. So we found that some of the personal emails that had information that uh, that contained like passport information, um, the uh, um, driver's licenses, address information. This was enough to defeat the con- some of the controls that the bank has in place before somebody can make transactions. So in this case, it's it's kind of unclear what happened Mm -hmm. exactly, how they obtained um, access to the records. Uh, I can tell you also that some organizations have um, the the mandate to provide uh, vendor information to be accessible to the public. So it is possible that some of this information was accessed just by uh, uh, a traditional search. In some other uh, cases, some other investigations, even though it's not my area of expertise, the cybersecurity aspect, we know that some organizations have been basically hacked and some of this information was obtained by hackers and and then they leveraged this information to impersonate uh, vendors and Mm. request payments. Yeah,
0: and so how was this fraud scheme eventually uncovered?
1: Well, in this case, uh, kudos to the bank. I mean, the bank did a great job in the sense that when some of these uh, payments were made to to the bank then the bank had some systems in place some protocols in which the velocity of the transaction the movement between all of these network of bank accounts and then the time it took to get the money out of the bank that was um, identified by um, by the bank so so basically in this case uh, the bank was able to stop some of these um fraudulent transactions and, and luckily for the victim organizations the, uh, the money was uh, basically recovered.
0: yeah and James, uh, it sounds like the bank here did a really good job. They you know helped the return the funds they identified the fraud. What controls do you think were in place that allowed the bank to eventually uncover this fraud scheme?
2: Well, it, it sounds like the primary control is, is what Victor just described, and that is the bank had the capability of identifying an unusual pattern mm-hmm. in wire activity. So for any bank that allows its customers to initiate wires through an online platform, it's important that that online platform be supplemented with some sort of a fraud analytics application that can analyze activity real time mm-hmm. to identify Uh, unusual transactions or unusual patterns. So things that that can be considered unusual are first time payees, Mm -hmm. uh, funds uh, transfers of a a certain amount or size, an unusual volume, uh, or, or maybe an unusual destination such as a foreign country. But whatever those parameters are, when a transaction triggers those alerts, that transaction should be suspended, it should be stopped, it mm-hmm. should be moved into a queue for the bank's fraud department to investigate and determine that it is a valid transaction before it gets released. And it sounds like that's what happened here. Mm-hmm. You know, a few other things that banks should keep in mind is if they have customers that are initiating wires online, mm-hmm. train those customers. You know, train them to be vigilant when it comes to protecting their login credentials. Uh, Train them to be very, very careful with any emails uh, purporting to be from the bank. Uh, Just sending reminders to the customers regularly about different techniques that fraudsters are using can go a long way to helping stop the fraud attempt at the customer level before it ever gets to the bank, and that's important. Uh, Something else that customers need to be trained to do is to look at their account activity. Mm -hmm. Uh, Victor was just describing this scenario and and indicated that the fraudsters had a degree of patience where they obtained the information, were kind of looking at what the balance information was, they were getting a feel for the accounts. Mm -hmm. We're seeing that more and more, that fraudsters are willing to take a little bit of time. And there can even be occasions where transfers will be run through that aren't very large to see if it gets through. And if customers are vigilant vigilant at looking at their account activity, they'll identify those and appropriate safeguards can be placed on the account at that time. Mm -hmm. Uh, For wires that are not initiated online, so this could be wires that are are initiated by email or by phone, uh, or or believe it or not, some customers will (laughs) still use fax uh, to initiate a wire. It's important that banks have uh, uh, formalized callback procedures. And that is where someone will call the customer back. They will authenticate that customer by getting the customer's PIN or passcode, something that's been predetermined, sure. yeah. uh, or they need to ask what's called out-of-wallet questions. Okay, questions mm. that theoretically would not be in a customer's wallet. So like date of birth, social security number, yeah. those are in-wallet questions. Yeah. You wanna ask questions like, when was the account opened? Uh, you know, what direct deposits do you have going in? Things that somebody, whose stolen identity may not know as readily. But once that customer has been identified, the transaction gets verified, that callback needs to be documented by the bank on the wire transfer request form, and it's a good idea to record the callbacks. That way, if there's a dispute later on, the bank has adequate evidence that they perform due diligence. Uh, and, And really, the last thing I would say is just around wire approvals. So for any wire that does not automatically get released through online banking, Oftentimes it has to go through an officer approval process. And what the officer should be looking for is the completeness of verification procedures, making sure that callbacks were performed, collectability was all verified. But they also need to be asking the question of, does this wire make sense for this customer? And a lot of times fraud gets stopped there where an officer knows their customers and knows that this particular wire does not look normal for this customer and they're, they're able to stop it before. Uh, before it gets out of the bank.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting about having you know that good relationship with people that you work with and maybe they can help you prevent some fraud. Um, well, thanks, James. I appreciate that insight and and Victor, I want to come to you again and get your idea of you know in this case in this situation, what do you think you and your teams could provide um, for a client in this scenario?
1: yeah, well that's a, that's an interesting question. I would say, uh, there are two angles to this one. One I think was really well covered by uh, James, which is uh, all the things that banks can do. In this case, it seems like the bank um, you know, did everything right, detected the fraud, mm-hmm. and then everything was recovered. I could also say that organizations need to be vigilant. Uh, some of those things were already described, like training, um, making sure that they have a solid uh, structure of internal controls. Um, Basically, making sure that employees are aware of all of these um, scams, positive pay is yeah. something that I think it's a very important measure. Um, and then in terms of our services, we can do, once again, we can proactively look at the, uh, the structure of the organization. We have uh, forensic data analytics tools in which we can analyze uh, vendors, we can analyze payments that have some, uh, I would say, high-risk characteristics, such as one-time payments, such as vendors missing details, or, um, for example, in this case, I think uh, James mentioned just the patterns of these payments. So we can do, in a nutshell, proactive uh, forensic data analytics to identify these weaknesses. Sometimes, uh, if some of the organizations show some of these problems, it may be a weakness, it may not be fraud just yet, sure. but yeah. certainly that can lead to fraud if somebody, if there's some sort of external attack. Right. So, so that's kind of a, uh, just a few examples on the pro- proactive side. Uh, and we can certainly do investigations. We can analyze uh, and look for high-risk vendors, uh, maybe mm-hmm. check the patterns. Um, so basically, similar to the previous case, we can help clients proactively or we can assess uh, the situation. In a reactive
0: way. Thanks, Victor. I appreciate that. And I think those services sound really helpful. Um, and thanks, James, for all of your insight. I appreciate it. And I think that about wraps up our discussion today. Thanks, everyone, for joining today's edition of Weaver Beyond the Numbers on how to mitigate and identify banking fraud. Um, thanks again for joining.